So all of his activity, all of his actions um, in our lives is, is always in the, by the same vehicle, and that vehicle is called grace. We understand that, right? That everything God does in our life is an act, is an, an act of his grace towards us. Because we don't deserve his activity. Anybody here deserve God's attention? Anybody here deserve and merit God's goodness in your life, his mercy in your life? None of us. Which is exactly what his grace is. It's unmerited love, unmerited grace, unmerited favor. The unmerited kindness of God expressed to us in so many different ways. The, the list is endless of how his grace is, is poured out upon us. In fact, in fact, the Bible says that he holds everything together by the word of his power. That means you're just being able to sit and be stationary and, and, and not floating up all around. Or <laughs> it's because of the grace of God in our lives that his grace is lavished out, poured out upon us. Salvation, of course, is because of his grace. The Bible says it's by his grace we're saved through faith, not something we've done. It's a gift of God. So we can't take pride or boast in our own salvation. All we can do is be humbled and thankful and grateful because God's grace has made it available that this newness of life in its root, in its, in its um, origin, comes out of the grace of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All by grace. All by grace. Now, Paul is writing this. He, he sort of, it sounds almost sarcastic when he starts out the, this, this passage about should we keep on sinning so that God's grace can be shown more and more? So we'll get more grace if we do more sin. Um, that, that sounds ridiculous and, and makes you scratch your head, except... Paul was, wrote it because he was writing to a certain false teaching that was rising up in the church. He, he, th this wasn't something he was making up, that, but he was addressing an issue in the church in Rome. And it was called antinomianism. Okay? Anti simply means against. Nomos is, is law. So a lawless type of teaching, a lawless kind of theology. It was, a, a lawless, it was lawless because some were taking Paul's teaching on grace some were taking his teachings on that we're, we're justified um, by, by grace through faith in God and, and that our sins are wiped out because God is so gracious that he removes our sin. And, and some of them were taking that to, to mean that we're no longer under any obligation. Since we are free in Christ, we're no longer under any obligation to, to adhere to or to bear, obey or follow any kind of moral code. We can really just live our lives any way we want, any way we please, because there's always going to be enough grace to cover it, because it will only accentuate the grace that God gives to us. It'll only uh, multiply the grace that God shows in our lives, because God's grace covers it all. Now, how many of you know the statement's true, but it's being applied in a very, very poor fashion? grace isn't a freedom to live any way we want. It's not how God intends it, and that's not what its purpose, but there was a group of people taking that and running with it, and it was getting the ears and the attention of others that we could live apart from 
rules. We can live lives willy-nilly. I don't know where that phrase came from, but it's in my mind, so I used it. <laughs> Any way we want, and grace will cover it. We don't have to worry about rules. We don't have to worry about standards. We don't have to worry about anything because, hallelujah, God is gracious. And Paul's telling them, listen, proof of God's wonderful grace isn't in our ability to continue in sin. Proof of his grace in our life is our ability to walk out righteousness. That's the evidence of grace. And that's how grace comes more multiplied to us more and more. And so Paul responds to this, this thinking, this philosophy, this teaching, of course. And he says, of course not. Should we do that? Of course not. I like King, the King James. God forbid. That's, that's just more impactful in my mind. God, God forbid. Since we've died to sin, how, we, how can we continue to live in it? We can't hide behind God's grace and to excuse sinful behavior. Now, that's elementary, right? We would all say amen to that. You can't do that. You, 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 can't, you can't use God's grace as an excuse for sin. Um, now, there's a problem, though, that this issue, this thinking, this antinomian kind of thinking didn't die in the early church. You'd think it would have. But it didn't die in the early church. And in some ways, and it's really sort of revealed itself at different times, popped up even in our own lives. For example, have you ever, and don't raise your hand, but I know the answer. Have you ever presumed upon God's grace? Because chances are you have. Take for granted the grace of God. Take for granted the newness of life that he's given to us. We, we have done that. I remember years ago I was teaching a youth class. And, and I, was, I can't remember the exact illustration, but it was something along the line that if you, you, know, if you plan to go out and you're going to do this and you know it's sinful, but your thinking is, well, I'll sin, and then afterwards I'll repent. I said, you know what? When you repent, you're not forgiven. And a voice in the back of some young lady said, What? which I thought was very comical at the time, actually. She was giving herself away, except we've sort of done that. Has, has the thought or the philosophy ever gone through your mind in the way you live your life and saying, well, you know what? I want to do this, and it's, it's easier to get what? Forgiveness than permission. And so we do it, presuming on God's grace. In fact, David, in Psalms 19, one of his heart's cries was, God, keep me from presumptuous sin. Keep me from, keep me back, it says, from presumptuous sins so that they don't have dominion over me. It can, it can get to be lifestyle. It can get to be part of the way we walk with the Lord of taking advantage of his grace. Have you ever noticed that when we, when we mess up, even willfully when we sin, that there's no immediate judgment? Anyone want to say thank God? There's no immediate judgment. We messed up, we knew it, we chose to do the deed, but, but there's no immediate judgment. The problem with that is it's easy to get careless in the way we live our lives. And it's easy to start minimizing sin because nothing happened. Nothing happened. I must be all right. It, it must, uh, things must be okay. That's taking God's wonderful grace for granted. We can apply it to even, not, not even sinful things, but, but good things, healthy things, proper things, like spiritual dif disciplines, 
lives of, we know that we're to be growing and, and developing lives of prayer, study, and time in the Word of God, in fellowship, in service. And we shove them off to the shelf, or the day gets busy, and there are the things that get crowded out, or we just don't make time and place for them. And there's no immediate results. Our lives still seem to be functioning and going okay. And that's called presuming on God's grace. See, there's a misguided kind of thinking that, that has existed in the church that and it, it, it ebbs and flows, but it's, it's on a high peak right now in our culture, in the Christian community. And it, it kind of goes like this. Well, well I, walking with Jesus isn't about rules. It's just about relationship. It's just relationship. Just love Jesus. That's all you have to do. Just love Jesus because he loves you. And he loves you so much that you can't get away from it. Just, just love Jesus. Can I tell you something? You can't have a relationship without rules. It's impossible. You can't have a relationship without rules. As much as that sounds so wonderful, just love Jesus. For freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. Hallelujah. Finish the verse. Don't be entangled again with yokes of bondage. You can't have a relationship without rules. A man and woman come to an altar, they're in love. And they're coming to share their vows in holy matrimony. And what do they do? They say, I do. That's a rule. It's a rule. Did you ever try to... Well, actually, we did try it as a culture way, way back in the what, 70s or, or whatever. Anyone remember a, a guy named uh, Dr. Spock wrote a bunch of books said that when you put rules and regulations around your kids, it, it, it stunts their growth and their development, and it, 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 it beats up their esteem. Did you know that that same doctor at the end of his life apologized? After raising a whole generation on lawlessness, he said, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. You can't have a relationship without rules. If you Listen, if you live on an island by yourself, you'll create rules. You'll create parameters, boundaries, borders, expectations. You'll create rules. God's wonderful grace isn't a free-for-all. We're not in this thing to live any way we want. We're to live the way he wants to live through us. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest rule? Love God, love your neighbor like yourself. That's a rule. It's a standard. It's a commandment. We, we love to read 1 Corinthians 13. It's known as the, the love chapter. We love to, but you know what? Uh, and we're talking about agape love, God's kind of love. Do you know there's rules? Listen, it says be patient, be kind. It's a rule. If you're going to love the way God loves, it's a rule. Don't be envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Don't insist on your own way. Don't be irritable or resentful or rejoice at wrongdoing. Don't do that. That's a rule. But do rejoice in truth. Do bear all things, believe all things, endure all things. Do those things. That's a rule. It's a standard. It's a regulation, if you would. Jesus gave a rule. Well, he gave a lot of them just in the Sermon on the Mount. But there was one special one that he gave, and we call it golden. 
Don't do to anybody else anything you don't want somebody else to do to you. That's a rule. It's a rule to live by. There's always going to be rules. There's always going to be standards. He doesn't give us his grace so that we can break them. He gives us his grace because we already have. He gives us his grace to heal us and deliver us from the rules we've broken, that have broken us. That's what his grace is about. And if we presume upon his grace, we violate our relationship with him. We take his grace for granted. We violate our relationship with him. Verse 3 says, have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? When we see our lives as immersed into his, when we identify our sin with his death, when we understand his great grace, we stop living on the edge. We stop trying to walk that fine line between righteousness and, the wor- and worldliness. We, we stop. We move away from the precipice. We stop trying to just live Christian enough because nobody wants to go to hell. So we try. You know, I, I, people have asked the question, how, how good do I have to be to be saved? Here's the universal answer. More than you are. <laughs> See, what happens is when, when we adopt that attitude, we use his grace as a license to do whatever we want, to justify our, ourselves, self-justification. But when we really understand his grace, the depth of it, the beauty of it, the wonder of it, the amazement of it, when we recognize how undeserving we are of any of it, it ceases to become about license and our walk with him becomes one of loyalty. We're joined with him, it says. Becomes one of loyalty. A life of devotion and commitment and honor and faithfulness and character and presence and love. All the things that we want in our, God to add to our relationship. He expects us to add those same things back in our walk together with him. Verse 4 tells us that his grace is not only our access to this new and living way, but it's also its activation. It's just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also walk in this newness of life. His grace activates in us the ability to walk each day in freshness, in newness of life. You are grace-enabled. If you take notes, highlight that. And don't say you, say I. I am grace-enabled. How do I know that? Anyone go through a really hard time and at the other side of it find out you were still standing? Grace. Anyone say no to sin? Or anyone have something in your life that you used to do that you knew was wrong and now you don't even think about it anymore? Grace. Anybody find it a little easier this point in your life to, than at other points in life to love the unlovely? 
grace. Anyone, anyone ever have a choice? Righteousness, not righteousness, and you chose righteousness? Grace. Anyone just take a breath? Grace. Grace. Anybody here thankful for his wonderful grace? Are you thankful for his wonderful grace? Every day we owe him a debt of just because of his grace. Second text. Go to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Newness is, comes to us by his wonderful grace. And as it comes, we, and we recognize it, we recognize it as a priceless treasure. Newness of life is a priceless treasure. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 10. Let me read them to you. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. You've heard that many times before. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way and not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We've heard that phrase. I want to take it apart just for a minute this morning. What treasure? What treasure? Well, to, to get the exact answer, we have to go to the text and, and just bump up a verse. In verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give. Here it is. Here's what the treasure is. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That's the treasure he's talking about. We have this treasure. What treasure? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That's the treasure. And we have it in these jars of clay. That's a long phrase as a definition. What does it mean? It means knowing Jesus. The treasure is knowing Jesus. The treasure is being able to possess Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus. The, the, The treasure is his revelation of himself to us that if it had never happened, we wouldn't be here today. You're a son, daughter of God today because he has made himself known to you. So if you're a Christian today, this is a picture of you. You have a treasure in your jar of clay. Okay, understand, when we put those things together, you're not the treasure. You're the jar of clay. It's you. But in this jar of clay, there's something really cool happening. The life of Christ is in us. Christ is in us. Now, when it talks about that that word in, i got to give a second to it. Christ is in us. There's other times where it talks about we're in Christ. Understand that you can't translate that as contained. All right? We're not... We don't contain Christ. He doesn't, it's not that kind of in. It's not like a tool in a toolbox. It, it, it means more connected. I'm, we're connected, joined, the other passage used, with Christ. Christ is joined with us. Jesus put it this way in John 15. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. See, that's a connection. A vine and a branch. Where does one end and the other begin? There's this union. There's this coming together. Um, it, so it means, connect, it means continuance. He goes on in, in John and he says that, that it, abide in me and I'll abide in you. 
See, that, so there's this sharing of life. There's this, this symbiotic relationship that Christ is in us and we're in Christ. Can I tell you something? As human beings, as jars of clay, we'll never get a better offer. It, it's a good deal to a jar of clay for the treasure to be willing to abide in you, be willing to live in you. It's, it's an amazing fact that the treasure has made that choice, that the treasure has made that decision and made it available to us. Because, and we know this, the jar adds nothing to the treasure. The clay jar adds nothing, nothing to the treasure, but the treasure adds everything to the jar. See, clay jars have to be shaped, they have to be formed in, in order just to be usable in any fashion at all, where treasure has intrinsic value all by itself. It's priceless. Clay jars are common. They're abundant in supply. They're, they're everywhere. Look around. You just keep seeing clay jars everywhere. Walking around. At work, there's clay jars. At home, there's clay jars. In your neighborhood, there's clay jars. They're, they're all over the place. Treasure, not so much. Treasure is unique. It's rare. It's, it's one of a kind. Clay jars... They come empty. Not much to them. What you see is what you get. They need something to fill them. Now, unfortunately, clay jars on their own try to fill that void with all kinds of things, none of which are beneficial or healthy. King Solomon walked through that process. Treasures, treasures complete in itself, full in itself. The Bible says the fullness of God dwells in Christ Jesus, the treasure. It's completely full, all by himself. There's no, when you look at this list, there's no logical reason for a treasure to be in a clay jar. It, it doesn't make sense. But in this reality, in this truth that Jesus, in illustration, the word of God is giving us, there's good news. It's saying that, listen, Jesus doesn't need you. But he wants you anyway. You understand that? We're clay jars. A treasure doesn't need a clay jar. But he wants us anyhow. He knows we're clay jars. He knows we're weak. He knows we tend, tend to wander. He knows that we're stubborn. He knows that we're selfish. He knows that we're prideful. He knows that we're just clay. And he wants us anyway. He desires to commune with us anyhow. He wants to be in our lives and our, to our, our life to be wrapped in his anyway. Doesn't the Bible say, while we were yet sinners? Clay jars. Christ died for us. The treasure took the initiative so that we could have this relationship. Now, as, as, as jars of clay, we know, and everyone would agree to this, that it's all about the treasure. It's all about the treasure. No one's going to disagree with it. No Christian's going to say, no, it's, all, it's, all, it's not all about the treasure. It's, yeah, it's clay jars. We, we know that. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's, what he's done. We, we're, we're thankful to him. We want to please him. We, we desire to, to honor him in the way we live our lives. We want to make him known. We want to be more and more like him. But there's a common mistake that we make. And the mistake, as clay jars, this is, this is the mistake we make. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to display the treasure by polishing the jar. 
You can say amen or ouch. I don't care. We try to display the treasure by polishing the jar. We want to make the treasure look good by making, so we think we have to make ourselves look good, and we take up that task. Is the jar comfortable? What do other jars think about the jar? Is, the, is, is my jar on a high enough shelf compared to the other jars? Is my jar used in ways that the other jars aren't? Can others see how well I hold the, the, the treasure? Do you ever try to polish a clay jar? You, you know what it looks like at its shiniest? A clay jar. Doesn't, it never looks like a treasure. If you, anyone here ever wash dishes? If you ever wash dishes, you know an eternal truth. Dishes can't wash themselves. At least my dishes don't. They can't clean themselves. Newness of life. It isn't about polishing the jar, but reflecting the treasure. Reflecting the treasure. See, a mirror doesn't, a mirror can't reflect its own image. Because that's not what it's created to do. And we're not created and designed and able to be the treasure, to look like the treasure, but we are. We do have the capacity and responsibility to reflect the treasure that lives in us. See, a mirror reflects the object that it's fixed on. Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. Second Corinthians 3 talks about beholding, fixing our gaze, like in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And as you keep your eyes on his glory, what's it say? It says that we're then transformed by the Spirit of God into that same image. We start reflecting that which we're beholding. And the moment we shift our gaze onto ourselves, we stop, stop reflecting the same glory. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Listen, if we live the life, if we live the life of a clay jar with a treasure in it, we're going to miss the newness of God. If that's how we live our lives. I'm a clay jar and I've got a treasure in me, then we're going to miss the newness God has for us. Have you ever tried to model the life of Jesus in your own strength? It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like, it's like giving an impersonation of a person while they're standing right next to you. It's like, no, we want to hear that guy talk, not you. We want to see what he has to say, not you. I don't, I don't need your impersonation of him. And sometimes we, we make that little adjustment in our lives, and we really live our lives just impersonating Jesus, thinking it's, it's all for him. And he's saying, no, just, just let me live through you. Let me live. Well, how do I do that? Well, maybe we have to do something about the traditions and the religion that we talk, sang about today. Maybe we have to let the Spirit of God work us through that process in different areas of our lives. But until the glory of Christ is shining through, reflecting through that area of my life, I'm not done. I'm not there yet. I can't live 
the life of a clay jar with a treasure. We're called to live the life of the treasure that's in the clay jar. We're called to walk out the life he's put in us. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or don't you realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you. See, we can't forget that reality. Every day we have to live with that recognition, consciousness that Christ is in me, the treasure is in me, and that's what counts. It's the treasure, not the jar. In your marriage, it's the treasure, not the jar. In your family, it's the treasure, not the job. In the workplace, it's the treasure, not the jar. Do you understand? In school, it's the, it's the treasure and not the jar. Here at church, it's the treasure, not the jar in our thought patterns, in our attitudes, in our conversations. The Bible says this, whatever you do in word or deed, it's about the treasure, not the jar. And then when we, when we do that, I shouldn't say when, as we do that, as we do that, we become invincible in life. We really do. We become invincible in life. Go back to our text in, in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that we're, listen to this list, we're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. That's not because the clay jar is so strong. It's because the treasure makes us the Bible, Paul puts it this way, more than conquerors through Christ, through the treasure that lives in me. He makes us more than a conqueror, overwhelmingly victorious, not unaffected by life. We, we know that's not true, but undefeated by life, not overcome by life, not overwhelmed by life. Because greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. How do we live this life? Verse 10, always dying to self. Oh, we hate that. So the life of Jesus, the treasure, may be manifested in our bodies. Choosing the treasure over the clay jar. Surrender. So that this newness of life can shine through us. God's wonderful grace. His priceless treasure, my last point, and it's a shorter one. Newness of life is a joy-filled possession. It's a joy-filled possession. Matthew 13, 44, one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. When we read that and we draw understanding from it, it it's a pretty obvious lesson that we're the man. And the, the field is the life that's, that we have without Jesus or the life that Jesus offers, perhaps, is a better way of saying it. And, and that Jesus, of course, is the treasure. The gospel message is the treasure. And then when a person comes to the realization of, of what that really is, that it, it's this priceless gift that they've, that they've come across, that they, we joyfully surrender all that we have, in order to possess this wonderful life, in order to possess this relationship with Jesus. And, and in it, notice that his joy wasn't a result of his purchase, but it was an anticipation of it. It, it says that he went out with joy, and his joy, he goes out and sells all he had. He didn't buy the field yet. 
It, but just the thought of it, the anticipation of it, caused this, this joyfulness to spring up inside of him. And, and newness of life is, is that kind of a joy that has a forward focus. It, it's a joy that comes from the Lord that, that anticipates the goodness of God. Newness knows that his goodness and mercy follow us each and every day of our life, regardless of circumstance. There's a joy that can well up inside of us that, that anticipates the goodness of God. And that joy, then, the Bible says, becomes strength to us. Isaiah says, with joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. But I want to give you another view of this verse. You know what? Stand. It's not going to take long. And if you're standing, I'll talk faster. What if... All right, what if, the same verse, what if the hidden treasure is the souls of men? What if the field is the world, the earth? What if the man is Jesus? What if when it talks about he, he covered up and went and tried, tried to then, then do the transaction that he covered up, what, what if that is, is a a sign to us about the old covenant. We're through, through the old law, our sins were covered through the sacrifice of lambs and goats and bulls, and everything, but had to be repeated over and over and over again. It, we, in the first interpretation, there's a picture of, of our joy over him. But in this other way of thinking, it's a picture of his joy over you. We understand, of course, we're supposed to be joyful over knowing the Lord. How many of you think about the fact that he's joyful over you? That's another perspective, isn't it? That, that's a whole other way of, of looking at your walk and your relationship with Jesus. And then with joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Listen, how about this? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that he could buy the world back. How about this in the book of Hebrews? For the joy set before him, Jesus, what? Endured the cross. He was buying back with joy. His anticipation of what he was going to gain through this horrific ordeal. I can't even imagine that kind of joy. What, kind of, what amount of joy is that? How much joy is that? How much desire is that? Well, how much love is that? That you'll go to a cross because of the joy set before you. But he does it. And he puts a new covenant in its place. He completes, he finalizes the old covenant. He puts a new covenant in place. The stain of sin now in the new covenant isn't, isn't removed, sins, or re, covered. Sins are now removed. They're taken away. They're not just covered over, but they're actually taken away. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. So far he's removed our transgressions from us. Because of his joy and what he did in purchasing on our behalf, 
the world back to himself. We're redeemed by his blood. We're set free from the law of sin and death. We've been given eternal life. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you or you're adopted into his family. You've got a new name that's recorded in the Lamb's book of life. You are his son. You are his daughter. He walks and talks and moves with you each and every day. And in him we can live and move and have our being. We are new in him, Christ Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. Hallelujah. Amen. And he shows us a new and living way. He daily is making all things new in your life. And he empowers us to walk in the newness of that life as we follow and focus on him. Listen, there's a level of life that none of us have tapped into fully. But hopefully we're all getting better at it. Hopefully we're all pursuing it. And the pursuit is a surrender to him daily. Is walking with him daily. And every day being recognizing the fact that I have a treasure inside of me. And if I'll let the treasure out, newness comes back. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your church. Thank you for meeting us as we gather. And Lord, we just commit your word to do in our lives what you set it out for. Let it be fruitful. Let it set down roots in our understanding. And let it bring a harvest for your glory. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that treasure. We don't deserve it, but you give yourself anyhow. And we've received you. And now by your grace, we'll walk out. We'll reflect that priceless treasure that you've put inside of us for your glory with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. At home, too. See you next week.